Hello, everybody. My name is Polly Hammond, and you are listening to Uncorked, the Italian wine podcast series about all things marketing and communication. Join me each week for candid conversations with experts from within and beyond the wine world as we explore what it takes to build a profitable business in today's constantly shifting environment. In this episode, we're joined by Ollie Purnell, co-founder of the Copper Crew Canned Wine Company. With 14 international wine awards under their belt, the Copper Crew is exemplifying customer centricity. Their focus on premium quality and open discussion of moderation and early adoption of seamless D2C has allowed them to build cachet amongst everyday wine drinkers as well as MWs. Today, Ollie and I talk about the value of great market research and what it takes to build a customer-first wine brand. Let's get into it. I laugh because we have the Ollie and Polly show today. Ollie, welcome. I have wanted to meet you and talk to you for over two years at this point because you are one of the three founders of Copper Crew Canned Wines. I'm so glad to have you here today. That's right. You're probably the most excited I've ever heard someone to meet me. So that's great. That's that's really funny. Um, there's this great clip of one of the, like, this is old school. I'm going to show my age on this. Um, Robert Smith from The Cure receiving their hall of, their like walk of fame, whatever it was. And the MTV uh, VJ is like, oh my God, isn't that amazing? Are you as excited as I am? And he looks at her and he's like, no, no, I really don't think I am. So, so that's where we are today. Um, actually, so the reason that I am super excited to talk with you is that we have been huge advocates for alternative packaging and canned wine, but also just for better messaging and better recognizing who our customers are and just like trying to break out of some of this tradition that we are trapped in in wines and i feel like that you guys have done a good example because you have award-winning canned wines you know you got wine canned wines that are worth talking about so for everyone who doesn't um know the brand can you just give us a little kick down on who you guys are and what it is that you're producing sure yes so so we're the cop crew we make uh three canned wines uh actually no that's not true we now make five we have five different varietals of wine. Uh, all of our wine is South African. And we're called the Cop Crew because myself and my co-founder here in the UK, Theo, were both ginger haired. That's kind of where the inspiration for copper came from. And the idea behind crew was that we wanted to share great wine with people. And I guess it's also a pun on grand crew as well. Um, mm-hmm. And the third sort of member of our little team is a guy called Sam Lamson. Sam is based sort of vaguely around South Africa. I mean, specifically, he's kind of in the Cape, but he moves around. He goes all sorts of places. Sam is a is a winemaker, uh, a very good one and a very young one. So he's our age. So I'm actually now 26, which makes me feel quite old, to be honest. But uh, Sam's a year younger, so he's now 25. But he started making wine when when he was 20. Basically, um, and he he did a degree in ideology at the University of Stellenbosch, and he has his own wine brand called Minimalist Wines, which make fantastic wines. Uh, they're really sort of they're really high end. Basically, um, he's distributed throughout the UK, uh, and you'll find his wine on Mission Side restaurants. You know that's that's the quality that we're talking about here, and 
We linked up with Sam via my co-founder, Theo, because he uh, lived in South Africa for five years and Sam was a, was a family friend. So we approached Sam with this idea of a canned wine brand um, and we felt that canned wine existed in the UK already, um, but we felt that there was no quality option and there was no, basically there wasn't a good brand. So that was the two things we wanted to, to build together. Um, and Sam said, yeah, great. I'm keen. Um, and that's that. So we, I've still never met Sam in person. Uh, I've still never been to South Africa, um, et cetera, et cetera. But that's the, that's, you know, sort of the world, world we live in. Uh, did I know that I would end up doing canned wine? No, I had no grand plans. Do I massively, am I massively passionate about, you know, wine as a liquid? Not particularly. It was a, a great opportunity, I thought. And it was partly inspired by my time in the States. I lived in the States for a year where canned wine is sort of, I guess, at, at the pinnacle. Um, so there you go. That's a full, that's a full story. And as you say, yeah, we've now been just have product for just about two years. All right. We're four minutes in. You've answered my questions. Let's go get a beer. <laughs> Done. Move on. Um, all right. So, uh, where to begin with all of that? I guess I'm going to begin, begin with a personal story, as we all do. One of the things that I really loved when I was reading the story of your brand is that Five Forest has, from day one, been remote. I had a full business partnership for two years before I ever met my business partner in person. And I did, you know, we touched down in some random airport in Milwaukee uh, to go to a client meeting. And it, it was just like, we'd sort of always known each other. And I, I know that this has nothing to do with wine, but more about business. I know that a lot of people adopted that sort of remote lifestyle and business, you know, approach as, as a result of pandemic. But I hear from so many of them that it just never like settled into their bones. And that now that they're coming out of pandemic, that they're so excited to sort of get back to traditional workspaces. And I just look at them and I'm like, what do you mean, man? Like my team is all over the world and I know them and I love them. And there's no, there's no barrier. I don't, I don't feel that. And I am more than 20 years older than you. Uh, so I don't think it's just a generational thing. You know, is, is it something that when you talk, when you go out into the world, the very fact that you mentioned it in the intro, is that just so bizarre for everyone that you interact with that you're like, hey, you know, mm. these are my people and we've never met? Yeah, uh, a lot of people do find it very strange. Part, I think uh, part of the answer to that comes from, actually, if you say that to anybody in the wine industry, the wine industry remains and still wants to be a very face-to-face -face business. Um, so that's partly why they find that very strange. I think people will also find it strange, uh, co-founding a business with somebody that you've, you've never really met. Uh, but that's also to a certain extent, uh, sort of the conceptive nature of, of Brits, I think as well. Um, I think the negative understanding of remote working basically comes usually from people who haven't done it. Um, or you can't. You can have bad experiences doing it. Don't get me wrong. That can definitely happen. But I think... And we all have. I'm not going to lie. Every one of us who remote, work, who remote works have dealt with, with shitty experiences. Everybody has bad, bad experiences. Yeah. But that's the same as in a workplace. So as with everything in life, there are good elements, there are bad elements to it. Um, but what I would say about it is I don't think it should preclude you from doing something. 
Um, and I think there are great life benefits, certainly, to being a remote-first business. Yeah, it's interesting to me because one of the things that I noticed, and this does have to do with what we talk about on this podcast, uh, is that it made me a much clearer communicator. And I noticed that I still have to work on that because we don't have the benefit of eight hours a day in a cubicle next to each other. You know, if I need something or even just in terms of personal things, you know, if I'm having a difficult week personally, I have to be willing to say, look, here's what's going on. So I'm working through this. I'm also working on my own things. And just that, like, what I would describe as probably well communicated, well communicated issues on one end and well received empathy on the other end, because we don't have to sit there in real time side by side with one another. Absolutely. And some of it is getting the right people. I mean, you know, I'm not yeah. gonna lie. Some people just aren't suited for it. Yeah, of course. And some people aren't yeah. suited yeah. for being in a workplace either. <laughs> um, probably like us probably at this point. Cer- certainly like me. I can't. I, I can't speak for you though, probably, but certainly like me. But uh, yeah. So that's all right. I agree. So you were in the the U.S. Mm. and again, because there are so many things that don't relate to wine that I want to talk about. You were in the U.S. on a fellowship for technical policy and law. Is that correct? Uh, yes, partly. That's the most correct anyone's ever been about it. That's because it's a very sort of strange thing. So uh, what I was on, I was on something called the Choate Memorial Fellowship, which is uh, Cambridge. Cambridge University sent one person a year to go to Harvard to study as a quote-unquote special student. And that's what I was. Uh, so what that really means is like I was a graduate fellow. And what that means is that I can take courses at any department um, that Harvard has to offer. Uh, and what I ended up doing was uh, tech policy, some law, and journalism, basically, is what I ended up doing. Um, so, yeah, an amazing year. I was actually paid for that year, which was incredible. Jesus. Um, yeah, it was it was a, a very, a very, very um, interesting and um, formative year, I would say. Hmm. Coming into wine from that, mm. so you didn't plan to go into wine. No, definitely. What was there anything about how the established wine world worked that really surprised you? Uh, there was nothing particularly that surprised me about it, but there was definitely some things which were, which were part of the motivation for why I wanted to enter it. Which is uh, my big sort of uh, my big beef with wine, I suppose, is that. It's kind of twofold. One is there's a lesson which I learned, um, and I think everybody benefits from learning, which is when I was a student, my focus was on on price exclusively. Okay, so I'm only buying wine from a discount aisle, obviously. Um, now, what I realized is that if you do spend a few extra pounds on your wine, it can actually taste good, sometimes really good. And that, I think, is a lesson that, you know, genuinely a lot of people my age uh, don't know and haven't experienced. So that was one element, is actually, if you pay a little bit more, you can have really, really good tasting wine. Now, the wine industry will obviously tell you that for, for years and years, but you don't have to really spend that much more. It can really just be a few pounds to make a big, big difference. The second is that I feel wine has a huge image problem, which is related to the first. That problem is that 
I don't think very limited amount of wine marketing, wine communication, anything to do with the wine industry, talks to pretty much anybody under 40 and basically anybody who isn't like white middle class, I think is a big factor within wine. And it doesn't matter what you think about that. What it means from a business perspective is there's a huge unaddressed market already there. Okay. And that was, for me, uh, those two things really motivated my interest in, in getting into wine. The stereotypes that you hear of it's an old boys club and it's very slow moving and all of those things are absolutely true. Um, and you only find out how bad those problems are by engaging with it, um, which has been an, inter- an interesting uh, sort of couple of lessons to learn. We talk about this a lot. You know, I can't believe that any of us still have to be in a room and talk about selling wine to millennials when Gen Z, quite frankly, is a drinking age and we're just completely fucking failing in every way to kind of move beyond it. And, and actually, that leads me something to I that I do want to discuss with you guys. Um, I noticed that when the kind of like old school, traditional wine marketing and communication business spaces talk about reaching new audiences, they do it very much in this, we need to get them drinking more. You know, we need to explain to them, we need to educate them. Like, and and it troubles me because I've got daughters who are both of legal drinking age, although on the very young side of it, one of them chooses not to drink. And every time I hear a wine marketer say, we we're worried because there's a moderation and temperance movement. How are we going to get these people drinking? And I'm thinking to myself, well, my kid is perfectly happy not drinking, you know, for lots of reasons. And she's safer. I noticed that from the very first lines on your website, you're talking about a single glass of wine, a single pour. We don't have to drink the whole bottle, you know, out of the gate, you have a message of moderation. Um, how's that received? How's that received in the trade versus consumers? Yeah. Well, firstly, I mean, moderation is good. I think, uh, the aim of a, yeah, a, a, the corporate aim of any wine company is obviously to sell as many bottles of wine as possible. Uh, that's not something that motivates me at all. Uh, I'm really not interested in that. I'm probably much more interested in selling you a better quality glass of wine. Uh, where does the where does this stuff come from about single serve? Um, well, part of that answer is clearly that you know that's an argument for cans, right? That's that's why cans have a sort of functional element over bottles in that sense, and that's one of my personal motivations for choosing cans was that, again, once I realized I'd spend a few more pounds and it would actually be quite nice, I I don't just drink wine. In fact, wine is probably the, the alcoholic beverage I drink the least of. Therefore, uh, I would often come back to what I had had maybe a glass of a week ago, uh, possibly longer ago, and by that time, it, had, it, it just wasn't tasting very good. And that's why, uh, for me, cans really resonate as an idea. But of course, you know, it doesn't matter. You, I'm a, I'm an individual. That's, that's not a market. And one of the worst things you can ever hear from somebody is if they say, Oh, well, I started a business because I'm solving my own problem. That's fine. But is that, does anybody else care about that problem? You've got to seek validation. But the first rule of marketing is you are not your customer. Yeah. I mean, it's always. Yeah. And you've got to be led fundamentally by customers. 
you've got to understand what they want and you've got to ask the right questions to understand what they want. So we did a lot of customer interviews to understand what customers wanted from canned wine. And the, there, there are two answers really that come out from that. One is the argument that most people suggest. Oh, well, I like it out. I like it out on the go. I can take it to the park and it's really easy. It cools down very quickly, et cetera, et cetera. Great. Uh, you know, it would be great at festivals as well. That's not very difficult to come up with. I think everybody would guess that as, as why cans are, are good. And that plays to, to a younger demographic. That plays to a younger audience, the sort of that millennial Gen Z audience we were mentioning earlier. But there's a second very big market, which is actually, I would say, larger and much, you know, addressed very poorly. And that market is moderators. And these are people who are seeking to reduce their alcohol intake for various reasons. And they are often quite a lot older. So we have a segment of customers who are 70 70 plus, basically. Uh, they're 70 to 85. And they use cans for the single serve element uh, because they're very easy to open. Many of them can't physically open a bottle of wine. And that is a market which no other canned wine brand cares about in the UK or is interested in. But I'm very interested in it. And that comes from being customer-led and understanding understanding what problem you solve so i think it's really interesting i would never have guessed that of course when i started but our biggest sort of commercial success has actually been these older customers and every company in the world wants to tell you how they're targeting millennials and gen z's they're doing x they're doing y these are all great strategies but but one thing you can't escape is that this older age group that we deal with um, have more money, are willing to spend more, and arguably are easier to reach because millennials and Gen Zs are the focus of everybody. So the amount spent per customer is quite high. So I think that makes quite a compelling, um, quite a compelling business case. Um, but that's just a one example of how if you validate what you think and if you talk to your customers you can actually find out some very interesting and surprising things so how'd you talk to them interview them very simple you get an email from you get an email from me my email says you know my signature is Ollie Pennell co-founder of Copper Crew and you just say to them um you know thanks very much for for ordering from us recently would you be willing to talk to me for 10 to 15 minutes about um, your experience in canned wine generally? And obviously that doesn't work all the time and that's fine. Uh, but you will often find that people really like you caring about their opinion and are willing to share it. But the one of the most important things is having the right questions, which is a different set. But yeah, generally I find people are, are pretty helpful. I, I think that's fascinating because for years we've said to people just ask like I, yeah. I think it's funny there's something about a keyboard and a screen that makes us feel separate from the rest of the world and again maybe this comes down to the same people who are comfortable working in a remote space right just ask most people are so decent there you know especially when we're selling something that people love we're not selling 
tires. You know, we're selling wine. It, it's such a joyful product. And, and also in this day and age, a lot of people like that notion of, you know, I am going to talk about your age. We're helping a younger or a newer brand grow into what, what they're going to be. Um, I interviewed Cindy Gallup a few months back and she is just an absolute rock star in advertising. Um, she herself is British. She set up the original BBH in New York in the 1980s. And she does a lot of communication around ageism and especially, uh, like just lack of representation of grown women. And she was talking about how, so this is, this is me as a 48 year old woman talking to you as a 26 year old guy. So sorry if I, I make you in any way uncomfortable, that there's a point in women's lives where we become completely invisible. And yet that's when we have the most understanding of what we like, the most balls to do whatever we want and the most money to buy whatever we want. And she actually gave in that interview, a whole idea of here's a way that the alcohol brands can get on board moderation of drinking among this group of women who, because for physiological reasons, literally can't drink as much as we could 10 years ago. Um, and, and it's that big, you know, it's such an important part of our market that just nobody is talking to. So I'm really glad that you actually bring up the fact that with age, our drinking changes in some cases because of health problems. And in some cases it's, you know, simply because we've learned more or we've had enough wine. We've had so much wine. Yeah. You know, you hit a point in your life where you're like, Jesus, I, I, I noticed that I drink a lot more beer these days because I can get a good beer. And I think that's also the other thing that now when you talk about, I can get a good beer in a single serve in a way that historically I can't get a good wine in a single pour. So you had from day one, this goal of producing high quality wines yeah. in a can. It wasn't, a, it wasn't a byproduct. What does that mean? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, what's the difference between producing a mediocre wine in a can and an award-winning mm -hmm. wine in a can? Yes, we did. We did have quality from day one. That's absolutely right. That was sort of one of our founding principles. But what I didn't realize <clears throat> at the time of coming up with that, obviously that sounds very nice. What does quality mean? It's actually a very multifaceted thing um, in, in the world of wine. The way that I think about it, uh, which is sort of really, I guess, a very personal way. But I think of quality as you take a sip of it and you go, hmm, that's quite nice. And what that means really is it's about exceeding the expectation, in our case, of the format. That's the way I think about quality. Um, so, you know, the UK has uh, I don't know, maybe five, five other canned wine brands. And at the time that we started, it really was poor. It really was nothing that you would actually want to drink. You would only really buy it because of the functional arguments or is in the right setting. So that's the way we, we thought about quality. And the other thing, the other way that we deal with it and action it is we have absolutely no control over what happens with the wine. Now, when I say we, I mean myself and Theo based here in the UK. We leave that totally in the hands of Sam. Because he is the expert here. Sam is the winemaker. So we set a, a, a budget, and it's kind of a, li a little bit vague. I mean, it can, it can be pushed to a certain extent, but we say, look, Sam, this is how much. These are the unit economics that we need to hit. 
you go and get whatever you think is is best. So we're totally led by him, um, and you know because of that, he he I think has feels that he has total freedom to do whatever he wants, and that enables him to go and find great things. And it also enables him because there's no there's no structure. There's there's you know, we don't have to we don't have to sort of get some some master of wine or something to approve our product. Uh, he can mix different things. He can try different aging methods, whatever, as long as it's fundamentally increasing the quality of your drinking experience. That's what we care about. So that is how I think of quality for Copper Crew. So you know what strikes me about that is that we talk to multi-generational brands, brands where within the production or the marketing lines, you know, you've got the old schoolers who've been there forever and you've got the young people younger being younger than me. Um, you know, you've got the next generations coming in and doing it. And a lot of what I hear from them and especially, um, from Gen Z's and in many cases from women is nobody wants to hear what they're saying. Right. So I, I can't help but wonder how much of what you're talking about is a product of the three of you all being equal in age, experience, goals. I mean, like going into something like this with shared goals, which what I'm hearing is those shared goals are not, we're in love with wine. It's the, you know what, we're going to produce a great wine. We're going to have a feasible business model. You know, this is, this is a sustainable brand. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's absolutely right. Yeah. I think that, so, you know, I have such a, I wave such a flag for millennials and Gen Zers. And one of the things that we notice consistently is them saying, just kind of give, give us some agency, like trust that what we're saying to you is not a product of us being young people, but actually us being informed people who just happen to be younger than you. So I, I hope that the audience who's listening again can take that on board. Is that if you, you know, if you want to sell wine to whether it's the 75 year olds in the room, but we have a lot of them or the 22 year olds in a room, get them at the table with you and actually pay attention to what they're saying and what matters to them. I know that that seems very yeah, uh, uh, basic, uh, and but I'll two you things keep to saying well. it until it happens. When, when, when it comes to thinking about quality, you don't have to take my, what I say about quality at all. Obviously it's just me saying, it. but then the way we validate is that, okay, well, here are our 15 awards that we've won for our wives. Okay. You don't believe in awards, right? Here are the quotes we've got from, you know, any master of wine you want that says, this is great wine. Here's the write-ups, you know. So it's about being able to signal to different people in different ways that, yes, that's quality. Okay. The other thing is that I don't believe most people want a huge education, either about quality or about how we make what we make. But there is a lot behind it. It is not, as people like to say, oh, so you just buy some wine, you put it in a can. No. If you do that, you will get a product which will not work. And there have been many examples of that. So all three of us are also basically nerds, is the other side of it. We all really like getting stuck into academic discussions and academic areas. One of those that we've got into is canning basically and to a certain extent a little a little bit of sort of 
wine chemistry and things like that. So again, if you want to have a conversation with me about how we hit quality, then we are always willing to go to that, that full extent and have that conversation. The reason that it's not on the website, for example, is because 99.9% of people don't care. So again, it's all, all, all of this stuff, it's about, it's about layers. It's about layers of legitimacy is the way I like to think about it. And you've got to know when you've got to flag out, you know, the real wine nerd knowledge or when you've just got to say, yeah, this won an award at, you know, the International Wine Challenge. And that's what we need to say. I actually use that a lot in how we structure a lot of the digital storytelling for brands because, you know, the people sitting there right there above the fold, they want a certain amount of information. But if they've scrolled all the way down to the bottom, you're probably okay to have like a link to your text sheet. Like they're just very, you know... They're just markers for how much they, how nerdy they are like the rest of us. I, I do think that the website is probably a great example. I'm going to have the link in it in the show notes, but for people to go in because you have on your website, you've got the Jancis review, you've got the MW reviews, but you also have friggin' trust pilot, you know, like public comments on your wine. So wherever we sit in that drinking knowledge you know yeah i mean look most people don't know what a master of wine is a lot of wine industries puts masters of wine on this massive pedestal which rightfully so very very difficult but most people don't know and don't care so it's meaningless Jantis robinson you know to anybody who knows anything about wine is a huge name but i can tell you that most people don't know who she is so that's why you've got to have those those different things. And yeah, to some people, Trustpilot means a hell of a lot more than what a master of wine says. Totally. So you were talking about, you know, other people, they buy some bulk wine, they pop it in a can. I feel like you had two big competition, uh, two sets of competition when you were going forward. One was traditional wine, but the other one was shitty canned wine. It was exactly that kind of canned wine that you're talking about. And we can all think of the brands who do it, where they go out, they buy some bulk wine from Italy. They, sorry, Italian wine podcast. They buy some bulk wine from Italy or Spain. They flog it off in a can. They sell it to their big D to C American audience. Um, how, without diminishing the the value, the, the the reasons that canned wine are important, how do you stack yourself up against them competitively? Mm. How do you differentiate the, the brand and the audience? And I don't I, I don't think that we can just default to saying, well, it's quality and it's awards. Because I think it does have to be more than just that. Is it? Is it price? Is it your packaging? Is it placement? Um, is it good emails and great loyalty building are you fucking awesome on twitter like how do you compete with them yeah well basically the answer to that is all of those things you just said um so it's about making sure that your price is right we want yeah i haven't yet bought a house via selling a can wine business i can tell you uh that's because we want our wine to be priced in a way that people can actually try it where is the product going to be? It's got to be in the right place based on your customer interviews, where your people go to find these products. Um, we've spent, and really what I do is we think press and PR is really important. So we spend, I spend a lot of my time on, on, on things like that. And it's a combination of all of those things. 
but they have to hinge off an overall un- understanding of where you want to be and what you've got. Um, and I would say just back to your original point about other other people and, and other players in the, in the market, one of the biggest existential risks to Canwine is that absolutely as you identified, uh, the market becomes associated with just low-quality wine. That's definitely a, a significant market risk and has in the UK has not gone away. Um, and if that if that happens, well, that happens. You know, you can't be emotional about these things, particularly. That's that's the way business goes. The other thing, though, which was a huge barrier to starting, and I would say has changed significantly. Two things, actually, really. One is perception of cans. Nobody had heard of can wine when we started in the UK. So every conversation was an uphill battle of saying, well, here are the reasons why cans are sensible. That's now changed. Cans are becoming a, uh, they're not well known at all, but they are, some people are aware of them. Let's put it that way. Second thing was uh, actually finding a canning facility was one of the biggest barriers to doing anything. Uh, in the UK, the quality and availability of doing it was just terrible, basically. Um, very similar in Europe uh, throughout when we were looking. This was in 2019. That has now changed a bit. There are a couple who are doing a good job, but again, there aren't many. Um, and that's why partly we really lucked out with sourcing everything in South Africa because South Africa is relatively developed when it comes to doing canned wine. They're much more similar to where the states are, so they know what they're doing. So actually, one of the biggest barriers to good quality wine in cans, the market developing, etc., was the was the canning options were dreadful. But that has now changed, and that's a we think basically a good thing. So you went out, you did all of your um, your market research. Why did you go for cans and not um, bag and box? Or if I recall correctly, at about the same time that you guys launched the Bagnums also launched, which were a high-quality French wine in 1.5-liter um, plastic, you know, casks with a little tap yeah. on them. Bag and box is a great market, uh, arguably a better market than canned wine, to be honest. Uh, it, it's growing better. It's got higher value. Uh, this is in the – I'm talking about the UK here specifically. Um, it uh, has much more understanding, much more consumer familiarity. Um, but for us – you know, financially, we couldn't make that happen. We could not start with a boxed wine operation. Uh, so the reason we started with cans is basically it was the only option we could afford, uh, which makes it sound like, you know, that was a rash decision and we were strong-armed into it. That's not really true because the real thing that we were motivated by was, as I've said, brand. We wanted to create a brand which people actually liked the look of and didn't look like every other boring wine level you see. We wanted something which cared about sustainability, and sustainability is, you know, that's almost a dangerous word. It's almost a Pandora's box to open, to, to put that into a conversation. Most people think of sustainability as a tick box exercise. We try to avoid that way of thinking. So it's partly what motivated our choice of cans, but that isn't an answer to sustainability in, in any way. So we also really, really look at the sustainability of the wine that we're sourcing, for example, and how we deal with wastage when we're producing, et cetera, et cetera. So sustainability is a whole other spectrum, which we've started on, and there's a lot more work uh, to do on that. So that's, that's, and we thought cans, you know, match with our, with our sort of customer, which we were going after initially, which was this outdoor type, as, 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 I, as I mentioned before. So that's why I've mentioned Describe bang and box. I think great market. 
the other one, which is great, um, but is in a, I think also in a difficult place like Canada at the moment in the UK is cakes. Caked wine is, is, a, it's, it's a really interesting market. I think it's got great potential, basically. And if you wanted to uh, really take Cobble Crew to the, to the next steps and really start to, you know, look for big increase in turnover, really rapidly grow the business, et cetera, that would be the way forward is you would stick with our, our can operation that we have at the moment and you would add bag and box and you would add kegs. Uh, but we have decided not to do that because basically Theo and I don't think we're the right people to run that business. Uh, we don't have experience in either of those areas. You know, we're very, we're very young and we were, we were certainly incredibly naive when we, when we started this. So we don't think we're, we're quite right to run that. Um, so we're happy with we're happy with our lot in cats, but you know those other areas you mentioned are great for sure. So you can't, or do you have a by the glass? Is it like do you have representation um, beyond D to C? Not really, not really. No, we have um, we we deal with sort of some distributors, but they're not they're not really like we're not sort of a, an ongoing customer of theirs. Um, so yeah, we, it, it is basically mostly ourselves and we have trade, which comes to us, which we all service ourselves. So yeah, it's very much, um, it's very much us against the world. <laughs> well, but I, I deal with brands all the time who they don't have tasting rooms. They don't have wineries. They're D to C only. And the question always is how do we find and onboard new customers? What does customer acquisition look like when we don't have those mechanisms in which the wine world is entrenched, right? So what does customer acquisition look like? Um, you, the, so my understanding or my memory is that the brand launched March, 2020, like we all <laughs> proceeded to just shut down like dominoes. How do you, how do you grow the yeah. brand? Grow the brand. That's, that's absolutely right. Um, I mean, Immediately, the first problem with launching in March 2020 was that South Africa went into a very strict lockdown, which meant that actually we canned our wine on the third week of March. So all of our wine just got stuck in South Africa. There's just nothing you can do. Um, nothing you can do. So that was the that was the first roadblock. Getting it out of South Africa was genuinely really difficult. And actually, we... Basically, we were forced to, we were forced, the only way we were going to get some, something out of South Africa before probably the start of 2021 was we had to fly some stuff out of South Africa. That was the only way to get it out of the country, which was hideously expensive. But we felt that we had to start because the longer we put it out, the longer you put out the learnings, etc. So, you know, our, our start process was fraught with difficulties. The way that we bring customers in is, uh, firstly, you know, as with anything, I think when you start, initially it was a lot of family and friends. That was how it started. Turns out that our product isn't, is half decent. And when you make a good product, which people like and has some value to their life, they like to talk about it. So word of mouth, we think, is a very effective marketing tool. And, we, uh, and partly that's what we use. We also take DTC like relatively seriously, which I think most other canned wine brands, certainly in the UK, don't really. Um, we've really tried to talk to customers. We've tried to put good content out there, things like that. And the other thing that we rely on is, as I mentioned, press. 
um, is yeah, really getting getting good write ups, getting people talking about it. Some influencer work as well, which you know we don't do influencer stuff that's not outsourcing that to some social media agency. That is us doing it all kind of organic. We're very very big on like organic. Um, and that's really that's really how how we've grown and and how it continues. So you worked basically. Guess what? How do you build a business? Yeah, you basically worked. because the you know there are many ways to run a business, and no no one way is necessarily better than the other. But if you really wanted to kick things off here, you have to get in. I would say at least half a million quid, possibly a million quid. That would put us down to you know a very small amount of equity, realistically. And then you're paying a lot of businesses pay for growth, and we're seeing now how a, a paid growth model really can uh, upend you in serious difficulties. I would say. So your point about looking for a business which is sustainable was one of also the main factors that we that we wanted. Both Theo and I wanted. Is you wanted a business which actually made financial sense nearly from the start. I mean, did it make financial sense right at the start? No. But we wanted something which would lead to something financially sensible, you know, relatively relatively quickly. So that's how that's how we've approached it. It, it sounds sort of kitsch and a bit. Uh, it almost sounds anti-ambition, but it's it's really not that. It's really about doing a couple of things really really well. And trying to be realistic about the situation and how the market is growing, rather than throwing money maybe at a market which actually isn't doesn't exist and isn't ready for you know for a lot of money to be spent. We noticed that um, a lot of wine brands, just because they got into digital so late in the, in the life of their brand, uh, don't necessarily see the many ways that they can or, or cannot spend their money right in a yeah. digital space so yeah w- when we say that growth can be very expensive i think a lot of it is because brands often will spend their money in the wrong way um and won't know the questions to ask of the service providers but one of the things that stood out to me when i was doing my research for this coming back to your fellowship so tech policy and law um Working in a digital space, working in the UK and Europe, California, and a handful of states right now, this is just one piece of compliance legislation after the next that's changing. So is this even something that with that huge brain of yours that you were thinking about when you were laying out the business strategy? Did you sit around and you're like, well, GDPR is going to change and Ireland is threatening to shut down Facebook. I mean, is that part of the tech policy and law that you explored? Yeah. Yeah, uh, Well, firstly, I'll I'll just pick up on, on the stuff about digital for other existing wine brands. The other big thing that's available in the wine market, I would say the quality of digital stuff that's put out in wine is dreadful. It is literally 10 years behind almost any other market because most people don't understand anything. You know, they, they almost don't like, oh, should we have an Instagram page? You know, it, it, some of the conversations I've had have been... I'm going to interrupt to say, I, 
I have a joke about this. This is what it is. My nephew told me that I should do it. This is this is like the just daily right. sort of thing that we hear because I agree with you and I try so hard not to be judgy about it. I mean, you are very non-judgmental. I'm older and more set in my ways and more judgmental. But man, some of it is bad and it just kind of makes you want to weep because you're like, come on, you've got so much potential. Yeah. You can do this. You can go but there. Really yeah. goes it's bad business. You're, I would say you're not serious. If you, if you don't, if you haven't thought about these things, you know, what are you doing? Yeah, you know, uh, seriously, that is the way I view it. So you can say that our business strategy is kitsch, but I would say, well, we take those things very seriously. Have you even touched them? And often the answer is no. And I feel like, actually, you know what, if I really wanted to make a good, good living in the wine trade, my best thing would to become sort of like a digital consultant or something and say, look, I'll set up and run your Facebook, Instagram and TikToks. I think that would actually be a, a far better paid avenue. But that's the other thing is, is that that does actually provide quite good space for people who care about it and put effort into it to, to, to make a bit of make a bit of an inroad there. Um, in answer to your question about things, you know, real real tech policy stuff, GDPR changes, um, you know, iOS changes, things like that. Uh, when it comes to thinking about uh, running a business, no, those things do not stop me, and I don't particularly think about them. The reason is, is that one of the biggest pieces of advice I ever give to, to people who think I have advice to legitimate advice to give them is I say, you, you got to start. That's because you, you only start learning, which is the most important thing that you're doing when you start. So start. And also, I can guarantee you, if you knew everything that, if I knew everything that I know now, I, of course, wouldn't have started. Naivety is a very important and actually powerful, potentially powerful asset. So I think that's actually quite important in getting a business started is, is just kind of being naive and willing to, willing to learn fast. And learning fast means correcting mistakes and not just doing the same thing, you know, keep smashing your head against the wall and not adjusting your path. That's wrong. It's about rapid experimentation and learning from those experiments. You know, if we want on, on just on a bit of compliance, the bit of compliance, which is probably much more relevant really to starting a wine business and, and it actually does require some thought which means you often can't just start, is legal compliance in alcohol is very difficult. In the States, it's incredibly complicated because each state is different, which also means that distributors stack up and up and up. So making margin is very, very difficult in the States. Um, and in the UK, we deal with HMRC and you have to register with HMRC and you have to submit a business plan that they think is legitimate because a lot of fraud is committed. Through, you know, basically setting up a, setting up an alcohol business and then not, not paying duty. So, you know, rightfully there's a lot of oversight in it. Um, but, you know, getting that, getting that over the line is actually quite difficult, takes a lot of time, you know, and is just one of those processes that, that, that you have to go through. So in terms of the compliance, which I think is a real difficulty, I actually think it's the legal compliance of getting set up as a, as a wine or an alcohol business generally, which is, which is the bigger problem rather than, rather than sort of tech legislation. It's interesting because one of the questions that had been submitted to me from my team for this interview was, um, 
Did you find that you had packaging compliance issues because so often in canned wines and nowadays in what we call it's like the boobs and bomb kind of beer marketing that it's really verging on too kid friendly mm. was that mm. something that you had to factor into yeah brand definitely design? we had quite a few discussions about about that and yeah making sure that it sort of resonates in the right way part of that was also um we wanted like yes we have these very artsy designs on our cans but we also want it to be one of the most important sort of um, motivations when we were do- coming up with the brand was you've got to look at it and say, that's wine. It's got to obviously be wine. So that's why we have the varietal on it. That's why we have the vintage. That's why we have wine on South Africa right on the front of the can. Because, you know, legally, that's an important element I, you know, that we should, we should hit. But also, it's important to signal to a customer what this is, and that those elements also suggest that actually this is maybe a better quality option. Now, in terms of actually like legal compliance in the UK, the way it works in the UK is there's this group called the Portman Group, which is a self-regulating uh, government body, which is insane. Why you would have something which self-regulates in a market like alcohol is ridiculous. But basically, that means you can kind of do what you want. Honestly, the the oversight in here is is very minimal. Uh, most things, everything in the Portman Group, it's not legally binding. So realistically, you can you can kind of do what you want. Uh, I don't think that's right <laughs> at all. I think that's very problematic. There are certain things that are that are law, like you have to display the number of units on your cans, whatever. But honestly, broadly, you can you can really do what you want. Uh, but that's a that's a sort of government regulation uh, discussion, which. Yeah. Let's not bore bore this. Well, that's crazy. Because that that seems to me unscalable. Because if you follow that path and you ever want to leave that market, well, what are you going to do? Completely upend your packaging and branding to meet TTB guidelines or another country's standards of practice? Like, that's crazy. And it it seems pretty self-limiting. Okay. So with that in mind, you started with three Mm -hmm. wines. You're up to five wines in a can now. I'm just curious, is there any interest in moving toward no or low alcohol wines or even something like RTDs or untraditional blends? Like where where is this all going, yeah. Ollie? So the first thing is if you're if you're making canned wine, the biggest market opportunity is in sparkling, I think. Um, now there are a number of problems with that. Champagne won't allow you to can champagne because they don't want that. Prosecco also won't allow you to do that either. So you have to come up with these sort of weird, weird and wonderful names, which aren't so wonderful often. Um, our, our operation is South African. Um, we're sort of, I guess, proud of that and very, very happy with what Sam does. South Africa, you know, their sparkling wine is Cap Classique. That doesn't really mean anything to anyone. So I don't think that we're really in a position to come up with a sparkling particular, which is unfortunate, but that is the way it is. Um, sparkling also has some sort of boring logistical complications, which make it actually pretty hard, pretty hard to produce in, in the right way. Um, sort of weird and wonderful varietals, uh, basically don't try anything. Don't be too smart. Um, you know, people like Sauvignon Blanc. Don't make your life way harder trying to sell them an orange wine in a can. Nobody needs that. Um, RTDs, 
uh, yeah, there's definitely good good commercial opportunity there. I think um, you know in the UK it's 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 its own landscape. I don't know how successful things like sangria, wine coolers, whatever are going to be against like tangent and tonics things like that. I kind of don't see them that much. You know, we don't get very much interest. And from what I know of the market, I wouldn't really suggest that as a, as a great place to be. I could be wrong. Um, so that's sort of partly where I see the market going. I think also the other thing is that size is really important. So this is another boring thing, but basically cans in the UK, the size of your can is uh, dictated by uh, weights and measures defined by the government. And here um, you can do canned wine, still wine in a 250ml, or you can do it in a 187ml can. And actually, I think a 187ml can is the best place to be. Why? Because that is a genuine, that is a genuine single serve. So that's a middle, sort of medium-sized glass of wine, if you ask for it in a pub. And that really, really works for uh, travel, things like planes, trains, all, all, all of those environments. That actually really works really, really well. The problem with that is that uh, the company who make those cans, which is a huge company, which produces hundreds of billions of cans a year, they don't think that it's a good enough market. So they've actually stopped producing them. So there's this sort of weird rush to wow. catch all of these cans that have existed. Um, but getting hold of the man in the UK is, is really, really, really difficult. Um, so that's sort of the way I see, like, I guess, can wine as a market playing out and where I think opportunity is. And then the last bit, no and low. No and low is great. I, I love no and low options and no and low drinks. In the UK, no and low beer is going through actually really pretty I think explosive is too dramatic. It's going through good growth. Um, and there are some great brands who are making really good tasting, high quality options. Uh, our view on No and Low is it's something we really want to do, but it's something that Sam says, no, can't be done. I cannot produce something of the quality that matches what we currently make in a no and no space. Says so that that is changing through some sort of some some technical innovations that are coming and, and basically in kit that's available. But at the moment, he is not comfortable uh, doing that um, to reduce selling of the quality that we make. So that's why we don't do no and no. Awesome. It's a good reason. I have a last question for you. Um, you're young, you're doing something different in wine. It seems like you're not afraid to kind of buck the system. Any chance that you would write this up as case study, as examples? Because one of the things that other industries get that we just don't get in wine is clear um, case studies of what worked, what didn't work, something that other brands can rely on, you know, that the next set of copper crew coming up behind you can say we can learn from their mistakes without making sure. it again. Yeah, no, I, I actually, I like that idea quite a lot um, at the moment. At the moment, really, these those, these last sort of couple months of the summer as well, yeah, I've been reflecting on uh, on, on exactly that and I should write a lot more of my, uh, of my thoughts down. Yeah, I find that sometimes, uh, sometimes I find a little bit of money helps motivate me to write such thoughts down. Um, but you know, Ooh, nice addition to the, to yeah, the podcast. Yeah, well done. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, <laughs> you know, all, all people willing to pay for my views are very welcome to get in touch with me. 
ollie at cobcrew.co.uk um but yeah you know i in all seriousness it is something that i i, I do want to i do kind of want to write down you know will that be some sort of grand case study i don't know will this be the case study probably maybe maybe this is maybe this is it already i mean i just noticed that that we have um you know We've got moving targets and how we communicate, advertise, what compliance is, what consumers expect of us. And I, I think it's because of our old school conservative nature, nature as an industry. We don't want to be open about failures. You know, in the tech industry, in digital, we're all completely honest with one another about things that we tried, what worked, what didn't. And we keep that so close to our chest in wine that we don't get, you know, that kind of like whole growth, that rising tide lifts all boats sort of idiom yeah, thing. Yeah, that's very true. Um, that anytime, you know, it would be great to just have people like yourself who are willing to take risk and so open about discussing it um, to share that. Because I, I hope that the future of wine is more willing to mm. risk um, and more willing to communicate and more willing to be interesting and joyful and, and love what we do and not be completely attached to this gravitas that has I, come I, yeah, before I, us. I, I totally agree. I totally agree. I think, I think you're absolutely right. You know, if, my, if, if, if me writing a case study inspired somebody to do something of our age with sort of similar ambitions, that'd be fantastic. I would see that as a, actually a great success for, for Copper Crew. Um, and I would say that, as you sort of hinted at, you know, doing what we do is most of the time very unrewarding and quite difficult. And that is the, that is the reality of starting in this space. I think wine is particularly unrewarding because it's such a, for, for like insurgent brands, because it's such a, an old, old, slow moving, difficult market to crack. And I spend quite a lot of time talking to other uh, founders in, in all kinds of different spaces. And one of the conclusions from anybody I've spoken to, including a number of people who used to run wine companies, um, wine sort of wine based startups is, you know what, if you can crack wine, you're probably the best business person around because the wine market is ultra difficult to get right. And, and I, I, I obviously I would say that that's not in any way, uh, to, um, you know, and sort of, uh, put myself up on a pedestal at all because we've got so much of that wrong. But it is to say that I think you're right. Part of that difficulty comes probably from a lack of knowledge and a lack of, which comes from a lack of openness about people who are in the industry saying, Hey, this is how it works. This is why these things are really difficult. I've tried everything I can think of, you know, but somebody else can see the way through that. So I think you're right. I think that would be a great, a great thing. We'll also just talk to people is the other thing. That's my other recommendation for other people. If you think that what we do at Copper Crew is interesting, much like you did, Paul, send me an email. Then we can talk about it. You know, that's, uh, you can't, you can't fear, uh, social interaction if you want to be, uh, be an entrepreneur. And you'll find that when people get in touch, you know, it's nice usually to share a story. I quite enjoyed doing it. So that would be my other big recommendation to any sort of aspiring wine people who have said, Oh, I've, I've wanted to start something for a long time. Just talk to other people who are in, you know, it doesn't matter if they just make bag and box or cans, whatever. They'll, they'll have something of value to say. So talk to people. Talk to the young open gingers yeah. in the room who are going to tell you the truth about it. You know, no. Absolutely. Absolutely. Awesome. 
Awesome. Ollie, I appreciate your time so much. I know that you're sweltering there in the UK. Um, and I'm going to let you now go and turn on air conditioning and fans because God bless everyone who's trying to podcast <laughs> in this heat. I'm pleased to finally meet you. Thank, Thank, you, so Thank you very much for having me. And that's a wrap. Thank you for listening and a great big thank you to Ollie for joining me today. The Italian Wine Podcast is among the leading wine podcasts in the world and the only one with daily episodes. Tune in each day and discover all our different shows. Be sure to join us next Sunday for another look at the world of wine marketing. I'm Joy Livingston, and I am the producer of the Italian Wine Podcast. Thank you for listening. We are the only wine podcast that has been doing a daily show since the pandemic began. This is a labor of love, and we are committed to bringing you free content every day. Of course, this takes time and effort, not to mention the cost of equipment, production, and editing. We would be grateful for your donations, suggestions, requests, and ideas. For more information on how to get in touch, go to italianwinepodcast.com.